Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 10, If I Didn't Have Kids. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And we often talk to people who have kids about our adventures. And um, a lot of times they think that what we're doing, uh, living out of a van, hitchhiking, backpacking, um, scavenging, all sorts of stuff, they think that's really cool. But they can't do it because... They have kids, but if they didn't have kids is what we always hear, then they would be totally about, you know, doing something else. Um, we even mention, like in our theme song, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids. So why do you feed it? Um, so this episode is going to kind of explore what's really behind that statement. If I didn't have kids. Yeah, and like so much that we talk about and that we're exploring, we find that the norm is completely upside down. It's completely backwards. Um, Hell, we should do a whole podcast of upside-down truth sometime. Um, But this one is a good example. Um, People say, if I didn't have kids, I'd be doing the hitchhiking, I'd be doing the dumpster diving, whatever. Um, And we're not saying everybody thinks that. A lot of people just say, you know, you guys are, are crazy and you know, that's disgusting. But (laughs) the people that do find some kind of interest in this often have that response. I would say, because you have kids, you should be doing this stuff. Um, Let's look at the norm. You know, the whole going to work, nine to five, you pay your bills so you can have this house and this car, and then you give your kids all the latest gadgets so they don't have to feel uh, inferior to their peers. So we're in this keeping up with the Joneses kind of mindset, you know, like the latest video games because your kids seeing the neighbor kids have all these video games and they don't want to feel poor and you don't want them to feel poor and you want to feel like a successful parent. Um, And I feel like that's completely upside down because you have kids. You should be trying everything in your power to show your kids another way, Um, like the consumerism, you know, the dumpster diving over the consumerism, scavenging. Finding ways not to feed the things that are directly, directly killing your kids. Like so much of the stuff isn't even debatable. Um, The debate is whether we're going to fix it or not. The debate is not whether right now what we're doing is destroying their future. So it'd be nice if we could get together on like just some of these simple truths and turn it right side up. You know, because you have kids, you should be exploring 
maybe giving up this excessive lifestyle that includes the house and the land ownership and the, the bills that keep you busy and alienated from your kids that make you feel like you have to pay more money to send your kid to some summer camp or pay a nanny to come watch your kids. Because I tell you, what I see in a lot of kids is they just want to be with their families. Yeah, and I mean, I've thought this for a long time. Obviously, um, Gumby and I do not have kids. We've mentioned that in previous podcasts. But whenever I've talked with people who do have kids, um, I just feel like if I did have a kid, I would be caring even more than I do right now about the health of the planet, of our environment, of our um, society. And that would encourage me to find a way to stop what's happening for the future of my children. Um, But that, like we've said, like it's kind of upside down. That just doesn't seem to be the case. And I'm not a big fan of science. I think science is one of the main reasons we look at things upside down. Mm -hmm. I think science is directly tied to a mindset that has understated um, truths and I say that with my little quotey fingers like man has dominion over the earth that's one of the foundational um, truths that science builds on Um, and science is so tied into consumerism everything that we're getting sold has a scientist somewhere in the background that's making it and it's stuff we didn't need before why do we suddenly find ourselves needing this stuff and inevitably the new thing when you'd start tracing down how the parts are made what's involved in the factories producing it what's involved in when you actually get it home how it changes your lifestyle your relationship with your kids um we find deleterious effects we find negative things and so we start wistfully looking back to this golden age, this romanticized age of, you know, kids going out and playing in the yard. And, you know, I can say that around anybody like, wow, remember how kids used to go out and play? And I'm probably not going to get much of an argument for most people I say that in front of. Yet what are we doing to change that, to help them have that world where they did want to go out and play, where people were role modeling that for them? Um, so I'd say even if you're one of these people that's just thinks of themselves as very scientific. You know, you're reading all the latest scientific journals. You are an advocate of the new cult, the new religion of science. That is your new God. You know, when science says it, screw the religions and everything. Science is the best way to find truth. If you're one of these people, good Lord, even science is saying this stuff is bad. We've got, I don't know how many years they're saying now before there are um, irrevocable negative effects on the lives your children are going to lead and the lives, if we live old enough um, to see it, we're going to experience. So when do we get mad enough? When do we get extreme enough um, to reject this, to recognize that because we have kids, we need to explore these abnormal, according to our cultural standards, lifestyles, these ways of needing less of maybe scavenging, of upcycling, of taking trash and turning it into something useful rather than buying stuff. If you get creative, if you take some of your time back and say, screw you guys that are trying to make money off of my time or trying to prostitute the finite, precious hours of my life just to give me some change so I can still feel poor and insecure, I'm not doing it anymore. You would find that you need to buy so much less. And because you're not chasing that dollar bill, you're not chasing that next product that you're condition like cattle to think you need and you think you're doing it for your kids what an unfortunate miserable lie you're not doing it for your kids 
I work with kids all the time. I listen to them. They don't. It's it, the, the products, the kids that think they want the products. They are the most miserable kids. They're lonely. They're bored. They're the ones complaining all the time. The kids that maybe don't have as many products. Maybe they come from a poorer family. Maybe they're not going to the private school. Maybe they don't have all the privileges. Those kids seem to be the ones that most respond to things that don't require money. Mm. We just did a fort building camp. (laughs) You know, I'm watching some of the other teachers and they're like going over their budget to buy things to get their kids ready for camp um, with all the materials. And these kids aren't working on the projects. I take the kids out in the woods to build on forts. And I'm not saying I didn't have complainers. God knows. But they're at least as happy, if not happier, than the other groups. No money spent. All they got was time and an adult to be there with them and talk with them. And going back to, um, like, science telling us that by the year, I don't know, by the year 2050, this is going to happen. Or if we don't do something in five years, then this is going to happen. I don't really even think that science knows when. I think it's dangerous that they're putting a date out there that seems to always be just far enough in the future that we'll kind of think like, eh, well, I mean, I got five years. Or, you know, it's 2019. In 2050, I mean, I'll probably be so old, it, it won't matter if the world burns up. Yeah, and I'd say, what is the purpose of that arbitrary number? You know, <laughs> obviously, it's not filling anybody with enough urgency to make an urgent, drastic change in their lives and just say, no. I'm rejecting this. I won't do it anymore. This is killing my kids. Oh, my God, I won't do it a minute more. Nobody's having that reaction. So it's almost like they're using this number to sell us the new gadget. Well, this is a little bit better. This is a greener technology. And even assuming that it is, which (laughs) maybe we'll debate that a little bit more down the road, but even assuming it is an improvement, my God, if you've got 10 years left before your kids have an irreparable uh, future... Do we want to make a compromise or do we want to just stop? I mean, we we look down on primitive people. We call it the Stone Age. All they had to do was, like, knock stones together, these poor primitive savages. Yet they were not unhappy people. And if they could do it, if we're really so much more advanced than them, is it really so outside of our grasp to, to move towards a life more like that, that we're not making such a huge impact? I mean, I don't know what to say about a culture of people that knows they are directly destroying their children's future and choosing products over that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how we can look away from that truth. I mean, we do it every day. That is the decision you woke up this morning and made. You got up this morning and decided you're going to flip that switch. You're going to turn on that computer. Maybe you're going to buy that thing that you've been saving up for. You know the cost. The scientists themselves are telling you. Let's not even get into... You know, the visionaries among our people and our culture, those egg-headed scientists that are inventing all this crap that destroy us, even they admit it's killing us. (laughs) And we just woke up this morning and did it again. What is up with that? And I also, you know, taking it back to parents, I don't want to beat up parents. I know that parents have a lot going on. And a lot of times the arguments against doing anything, changing the way that their life looks, it all boils down to what we also agree is the most valuable thing in life, and that's time. And with parents 
convenience because if they are having to go to work, like how can they feed their kids, you know, the best organic foods or how can they even get any kind of food in front of their kid that the kid will eat? Um, so, you know, prepackaged this and pre-cut apples and, you know, plastic packs. Every choice that is made now affects the future. And I've often wondered about this debate, like, are we picking the right battles? Mm-hmm. As I want to jump in there because uh, before Teresa gets into that, it was I heard her come up with this idea yesterday where she was exploring picking the right battles. And you said something really funny. We were at a rest stop and she went in the bathroom. And what was it? You said bathrooms are fertile grounds for like... Um, Discussion discussions <laughs> and like seeing our society at work. And I just thought that was a funny comment that spurred this <laughs> idea of like, are we choosing the right battles? I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, so a little bit more background about the bathroom, because uh, this is not a podcast about bathrooming. We already did that. It all leads to poop. Um, yeah, it, it does, though. Um, I hear parents, you know, trying to instruct their kids in the bathroom. And it seems like, my goodness, they're irritated with their own kids. I mean, that's their kid or kids. And, you know, we deal with other people's kids at camp and we only have them for like a few hours out of the day. And <laughs> I can't say those hours are always that yeah, enjoyable. If you're annoyed, we, we understand. So we, we understand. <laughs> um, we sympathize with you. But looking at just, for example, the bathroom, like what have we done with our bathrooms? We used to go out into the woods to take a crap. Uh, Then we had some sort of outhouse. And even now you can have compost toilets and they're amazing. But instead we have these automated toilets that the kids are even commenting like, it keeps flushing. Why does it keep flushing? We were sold on the idea by scientists that these toilets were like, uh, reducing the amount of waste of water going down the toilet. Instead of using nine gallons of water, it uses only two. But it flushes four more or five more times than it had to because <laughs> it's automated. If you would have just let me be in charge of it, if we're going to have an indoor plumbing situation, I know it's not that hard to flush a toilet. Um, and then you get to the sink and the water, you put your hands under it, Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you walk away and the water's still running. Maybe you've been conditioned because you're a child that was born in 2009, and the only thing you know is a sink that just turns on and turns off by itself. So whenever you get in front of a sink that has a handle that you have to shut off, now you don't even know to shut it off. We've we've done that. We've done that to adults as well. And then the soap dispensers that, oh, they're going to save companies money because they like only dole out a little bit of soap at a time. We all know what to do. You just keep putting your hand under there and using it. And the paper towels for that matter. All those dispensers are using uh, non-rechargeable batteries. So now instead of just wasting paper and wasting soap, we're also wasting batteries that are ending up in our landfill. And because we accept this lie, it makes us feel better. That's all we're being sold is a little temporary feeling that we've done something. We've done our part to improve the environment. And it's a lie. We've used science to make it so that, oh yeah, all of these gadgets are actually helping. And they're not. And when I talk about are we picking the right battles for our future... Because every choice that's made now affects the future, not just for us, not just for our children, but for generations 
on and on. I think about every little thing. Like, there's this huge, you know, talk about plastic straws in 2018 and 2019 so far. Um, I still people I still see people using plastic straws, forks, whatever, wasting, you know, all over the place. And it makes me wonder, like, do those people think that the battle's even worth it? Um, that are that are wasting. And it 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 really gnaws at me because I feel like I want to help, but then I see all these people around me that are just, oh well, that was the comment I heard in the bathroom, like, oh well, it's just wasting stuff, oh well. And that's kind of the the feeling I get from a lot of people that they just don't care. They're just like, well, I mean, I don't have the time to figure all this out. The beast is too big. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my teachers, Tom Brown Jr., I mentioned him quite a bit because he had uh, him and his school had a big impact on my life um, when I was starting to explore, like, dropping out of society, escaping society. For me back then, it meant taking off to be a hobo, and to be a better hobo, I thought I needed really strong wilderness survival skills. And I still believe these things, but the arrangement of where they fit in the priority of getting out of society has changed a bit. Um, but he's got this great quote that he says, we are killing our grandchildren to feed our children. Um, and he was somebody who was raised by, or was taught by an Apache elder. Um, and then there's this saying that we hear from... Uh, do you know what tribe talks about the seven generations? I don't, not off the top of my head. God, it sounds like a uh, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Confederacy type of statement. Mm. But anyway, the idea is prevalent in indigenous people. Think about the seven generations next. That can be kind of a hard thing in our culture. I mean, we're so distracted, it's hard to really wrap our mind around the next seven generations. But I'm looking at Tom Brown's quote, we're killing our grandchildren to feed our children. We know we're doing this. We are taking away the best chance of a future they've got with our practices, our habits, to feed the immediate need, or so we tell ourselves, of our children um, with this consumerism, with this way of life. But it's even more immediate than that, because that might be a little too abstract for you. You haven't met your grandkids yet, maybe, depending on how old you are, but you've looked your kid in the eye. You know, like little Sally there, you know Sally's personality. You see her growing up, you love her, you've seen her birthdays, you've got the pictures. You're killing her future, supposedly, to take care of her. You know, all these things that we're doing, we need to stop. And one of the things Teresa and I are doing, we don't want to just like bully people and say, you, 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 you know, like you guys suck. We know we're a part of it too. But we're finding some things that would help people, but they've got to change the way they think. They've got to get extreme. They've got to be willing to defy the norm. We know you can eat without feeding consumerism. That's one thing Teresa and I have, have figured out. We know you can get by with a lot less than most of, if not all, the people around us that we see. This is just something that we've resigned ourselves to. And the trail, if you follow the trail... Your kid's not going to have a future. I can't say that enough. Your kid will have a miserable freaking future. This whole private school, getting your kid to go to college crap, it doesn't matter. Like I said, let's go back to the scientists. Even the scientists themselves, that's what they're telling us. And unless you're somebody who's already like living in the woods and has rejected the world that the scientists are building around us, you're one of the disciples of the scientists. You're buying the technology. You're building a life that's dependent on these scientists. And if even they're telling you that, what are we doing, people? Did you say we're, we're killing our children mm -hmm. to feed our children? 
Mm-hmm. I was just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At length. Yeah, well, no, no, I was, I mean, I, because I feel like that needs to be said again. Little Sally. We Remember are. Remember I was saying Little Sally? Hmm. Nope. we're killing our children to feed our children and Gumby mentioned the next seven generations but it's really this generation I I don't know how much more to stress you don't need to worry about like what's going to happen in 10 years or five years it's happening right now it is already started and if you don't believe me spend uh some time outside and if you're um, if you're in any doubt, yeah, look at listen listen to people from around the world. Listen to people that travel, like truck drivers. They notice it, and I don't usually consider truck drivers to be you know environmental activists. <laughs> Open your eyes, listen, feel it. There's something going on, and it's happening now. Oh my God, yeah. When we were hitchhiking last year, we were at a truck stop, and uh, just. You know, a lot of truckers walking by saying, I'd like to give you a ride, but things have changed. I used to give people a ride, but, you know, the trucks run different. The companies are different. It's harder to give somebody a ride. Um, We could still catch a ride with a trucker now and then. But the interesting part relevant to what Teresa was just saying is over and over, these truckers were noticing the climate change. These are people that travel the country regularly, and they were all marveling at how hot it was. Like, something's different year after year. And these are not, like, you know dreadlock granola activists. <laughs> These are like, you know, your old, like, you know, Billy Bob, you know, been doing this this whole year, probably votes Republican, you know, like he's not really necessarily like somebody that, <laughs> I don't want to say he doesn't care about the environment because often I'm surprised that the people that are like that are actually the people that in their way sometimes care even more about the environment mm-hmm. than the other crowd that like really likes to put up that facade. But they're noticing it. They are noticing something happening. These people um, but when we're in our little insulated worlds with our air conditioners and everything, it's so easy to ignore it. If you're just flipping on TV, going to Facebook, getting on your computer, going in your car, you know, you might hear a little news story about it and a little news story about it. Good God, that should be front page news. We're hearing about Kim Kardashian and we're not hearing about the 150 species that went extinct today. <laughs> I mean, fuck the news. Um, the boiling frog, this isn't an analogy that, uh, you know, most of us are familiar with. You put a frog, it says, in a boiling pot of water, it's going to jump right out. You put a frog in a comfortably, you know, cool or warm pot of water and slowly turn up the dial and boil it, it said that the frog won't jump out. I uh, have never experimented with this myself. I don't plan on it. But the analogy, I think, is very interesting. I think that's kind of the situation we're in. If all the environmental destruction had happened in, let's say, the span of 10 years. Oh my God, you'd be so alarmed. You would probably be rejecting this stuff like it's poison. You'd be spitting it out. You know, all this technology, all these ways of life. We'd be so alarmed that everybody would be reacting. The problem is the shortness of our lifestyles. And I think one of our talents as a human animal or any animal that has survival value, which if it exists now, it has some kind of survival value, is adaptability. This can work against us because we can make any change into the new norm. And some things, like when we start taking control of things involved in the the cycles of the earth that we shouldn't be in control of, 
we should not accept that as the new norm. It's happening just slowly enough for us to get used to it. So it's always, like Teresa said, like 10 years, 15 years off. It's enough to alarm us, but not enough. What if it's now? What if it's happening right now? And it's not just you. It's your kids. It's everybody's kids. You know, um, Daniel Quinn, I'm going to mention a couple of his books that are really relevant to this topic. But uh, he's got this great essay that he calls The Boiling Frog um, in his book, The Story of Bee. And you can look this up online without having to read the whole book. Just go to, I think it's oilcrash.com or something. Look up Daniel Quinn, The Boiling Frog. Just read through that. It's a quick read. It's just the essay called The Boiling Frog, not the whole book. And wow, I found that to just be a really instructive thing. He goes through the whole history of our culture, 10,000 years, and he makes each segment of it the doubling of the population. Every time the population doubled, that's a span of time. And you see that get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until right here, it's like, you know, 20 or 30 years, the population doubles. And he focuses on all the things that have never happened before. Mm -hmm. These are things that aren't part of the normal human experience. Um, And wow, that just blew my mind thinking about how long humans have been here and how comfortable we've got. You know, our elders had something important to share with us because their lives weren't much different than their grandchildren. So we revered our elders. They were a wealth of experience. Now we fill our lives constantly with things that have never happened before. We feel like we're, we're stagnating and failing if that isn't happening. One of the side effects is our elders have less to share with us. We like to hear their stories, but they're kind of anecdotal. They're like historical, like What can our elders tell us about this changing world? What can our parents even tell us? Now our our grandchildren have to teach the elders how to use all these new gadgets Mm -hmm. that they suddenly feel like they can't survive without. Another inversion, completely backwards. It's like we're in bizarro world. We're taking the truth, turning it upside down at every chance we get. And that boiling frog, yeah, just go read that. If things were happening a little faster, I think we'd feel more of an urgency. And I also think Hollywood, you know, we see movie after movie about the end of the world, the apocalypse, and it's always this big dramatic thing, you know, uh, Judgment Day. It's the, the day this happened, this big event. What if the end of the world doesn't look at all like that? What if it's not the day the zombies start walking the earth? What if it's this thing that's just slow enough to be a slow death? Because I think we are in the middle of the, the Armageddon, the apocalypse, the end of the world. But because it doesn't look like we've been taught to think of it, we don't recognize it. So we don't act like we're in the apocalypse. But we need to have that urgency because I believe the earth has hugely regenerative properties. I believe if we stopped what we were doing, if we cared enough just to stop, make that sacrifice. I mean, hell, we applaud all of our veterans. They go make the ultimate sacrifice, right? At the behest of politicians. What if we all felt like that? What if we all recognized that we are soldiers and we are put on the wrong side of things? We are put in a battle against our own planet, against the future of our children. What if we made the sacrifice? Every every single one of us. This could stop today. It could stop right now. And something else to add to what Gumby was talking about with the upside down effect of uh, like how grandchildren are teaching their parents and their grandparents how to do things because we're revering technology so much in our society. It's also happening that we're raising a culture, a society of robots. Um, 
we do things and we have no history. We have no awareness of where that came from. Maybe something that we're doing used to work um, in the past, but we're doing it now without any history attached to it. And maybe we're doing something now in the present that in the past they figured out actually didn't work long term, but we don't know that because we're not listening to our elders. Our elders are often so old and decrepit that we're you know, thinking that they're senile when we, when they tell us, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. So even that is contributing to the upside down, uh, ness of our culture. And as far as, um, just the, the kids nowadays, if you think about, we were, we were teaching kids that were born around 2009. They've lived their entire lives with smartphones. Um, to my recollection, smartphones started to become really popular around 2007, 2008. So even as a baby, they might have held one in their hands um, to be entertained. And all of these distractions are perfect for having an entire society not really care so much about what's going on around them. And... Hmm, I think I, I felt like I had something else to say. But Gumby, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll jump in if you remember what that thing is. Um, I would just say, like, the first time I heard people compared to robots was also in a Tom Brown Jr. book when I was, uh, before I took his classes, I was reading his books. And I think he's got a little section at the beginning of one of his books that called, is called A Society of Robots. And since then, through my reading, I found that this idea of turning these magical beings these human animals into pieces of a machine goes way back. It uh, goes back to Plato. It goes back to, is his name Descartes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always get his name wrong because I read a lot, but I don't hear people say these things. So I've been calling him Descartes or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think therefore I am. On to Francis Bacon, you know, how he was really into the, the domination and control of nature. I mean, there's just been one philosopher and one one researcher after another through history that has slowly edged us towards thinking of everything as a mechanism. Hmm. Once we started thinking of nature as a mechanism, as pieces of a machine, it gave us power over it because we didn't have to ask permission anymore and we didn't have to feel bad about anything we did to it. It was just here for us. It was a piece of a machine and it was a human-serving machine. But it was a monster we created, this big leviathan. We couldn't stop it. And before long, it had infiltrated our own tribes, our own people. Suddenly, we're being treated like pieces of a machine. And at first, the rich can benefit from that. But now, I don't think anybody benefits. Even the rich are pieces of this the, this machine. Um, look at your job, you know, like... Um, you may do your job in a very unique way. People know your name. People like to joke with you. But look how quickly you can be replaced. I have been in so many jobs where I really did a good job. I felt really good about my work. But, you know, when the time came, when my path diverged from the managements and, you know, I either got rid of myself or they got rid of me, I was replaced. I was a piece of a machine. And that's a scary way to live. Um, yeah, and... One of the truths I think we all need to face, if we could all just face this as a group, and I think this is something that all truths point to, is we are, in fact, failing our children right now. You may think what you're doing is like you're making sacrifices for your kids, and maybe on a small scale, you are. But in a bigger picture, we are all failing our 
children. If we could face that, you know, if that jars you, if that makes you feel bad, if you want to like punch me in the face for saying that, good. That's the emotion I, I want to see evoked because we need to feel strongly. Because once you get done denying it, it's a hard truth to just dismiss, you know, like these scientists, they're not doing it by themselves. When they say that the earth is in the shape it's in and in 10 or 15 years, Derek Jensen, he, uh, he says something really interesting where he says, don't identify with your abuser, that even if we all stopped immediately polluting the earth, that the corporations alone do like 85% of it. So I find that interesting because I, I like that he brings that up, you know, like, I agree with that on one hand, but at the same time, if I had Derek Jensen right here and he said that, I'd ask him, well, who feeds the corporations? Mm -hmm. They don't exist without us feeding them. So doesn't that put the responsibility right back on us? Not to just dwell in guilt and feel bad about ourselves, but to recognize we have power. Um, we could stop this. So, you know, what is our responsibility? We're taught that our responsibility for our kids is the best schools the best um, technology nowadays, because if they don't have the, the up-to-date technology, they can't keep up with the other kids in this competitive marketplace, we're told. Um, what's our responsibility to our kids? Food, you know? And yet something's wrong. We all know it. Oh my God, I can't believe when I have a, a group of kids in the camp, how many have weird allergies I've never seen before. These weird names, you know, this, this relationship with their food. And these are kids that are like, going to private schools, you know, a lot of them are vegetarians, vegans, and yet something ain't working. Something is like incomplete in this equation and it's getting worse. It keeps getting worse. Um, so I'd say our responsibility to our kids first and foremost is give them a future. Let go of the insanity. Um, Teresa and I met this really neat guy at a, the, a park. We're in Asheville, North Carolina. We have one week off from summer camp right now. So we're escaping the heat. We went straight to the mountains for this week. Went to Asheville, went skinny dipping in one of our favorite places. Um, we call it the Golden River. I guess it's Susquehanna River <laughs> is what they call it. I lost my keys in the river. So Teresa has to go get help, meets this guy, um, and he helps us out, lends his phone. We call AAA, find my keys. The call gets canceled anyway. Um, that tragedy was averted, but it felt like it was all kind of meant to like start this conversation with this guy. Um Oh, damn. I lost my trail of thought now, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we were talking about what is our responsibility. Yeah, our responsibility for our kids. But, yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. Um, man, I know I'm going to listen to this and like, oh, that was what I was talking about. But <laughs> let's move on. Maybe it'll come back to me and I'll jump back in. Mm. Well, um you know, you might be listening to this and you don't have kids. We don't have kids. And you might just be thinking like, yeah, those parents. But I also want to point out that it's not just biologically their kids. It's all of our kids. Like this is the health of our planet. So if we're going to use kids as a like a scale or something to say like this is the health of our future as a species, um, then so be it. So look at all the kids as our children and also not just the human species. If you don't like kids at all, but you love animals, think about that. Like think about what we're doing now. If you didn't have to work and you're single and you don't have any, you know, anyone depending on you, 
who cares? You could use, you could go out to fast food every single day and use up that plastic and purchase all this stuff that you want to make you feel better, but it never quite makes you feel better. Um, so all of that is also what we're talking about when we say, if I didn't have kids. Yeah. And you know, really emphasizing that, that question once again, like our responsibility, what is our responsibility to our children? Um, if we are living a life that is killing our kids, oh, I know why I brought up that guy. Ha! It was because we got talking about Peace Pilgrim. <laughs> and one of the things that I loved about Peace Pilgrim, another name you should really research. Wow, she is inspiring. But she led this remarkable life where she gave up everything. I mean, she makes me and Teresa look like the Trumps. <laughs> she just walked out around with like a tunic and a toothbrush and like letters to write notes, basically. And one of the things she did that led to this remarkable life is she simply decided, if I don't agree with this, if I feel like it's a bad thing, I stopped doing it. Mm. Think about that. No compromise. It's a bad thing. I don't need it. I stopped doing it. If it's a good thing, I'm going to do it. That was the premise of her life. And she was one of the most spiritual people I've ever heard of, at least in modern times. And it was that simple for her. I mean, my mouth drops open when I think about this woman, Peace Pilgrim. Please look into Peace Pilgrim. Um, I hope she inspires you as much as she does me. But back to the responsibility. What is our responsibility for our children? I'd say, in lieu of Peace Pilgrim, if you see something that is destroying your children's future, like there's all these studies now about what social media does to our kids, and I hear parents act helpless. Oh, I can't. You know, my kid would like, they act like their kids are just going to launch a, uh, what do you call it when you take over a ship? A mutiny. A mutiny. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. A mutiny if their kids don't get this. Take control. Maybe we need some more of that. Like, you know, we had all this discipline in World War II, like during that generation, you know, and I wasn't a big fan of this like hard hand, you know, kids should be seen, not heard. But then in, in reaction to that, we let go of all discipline. Suddenly our kids are like walking all over us. We've got these spoiled, entitled kids that never, they act like they've never heard the word no. And by the time they do hear it, the parents are so fucking crazy angry that it's not a responsible no. It's not a authoritative, leadership, calm, wise no. Um, I feel like our responsibility to our kids is if we can see something, you know, if we see something they don't see with our longer lifestyle, our, our longer lives, we, we're older, we should know better, and it's bad for them, no, we don't do it. Just imagine that, that simple thing. You don't do what's bad. Yeah, so uh, we, we've mentioned now several times that we're teaching um, summer camps for these kids um, who can afford it. So it's at a private school. Um, but I think maybe all kids, when it, what it boils down to is what they really want is the love and attention of their parents, their, their guardian. And if we had it in my, in my opinion, in an ideal situation of their tribe, um, because I've seen a lot of kids that have all these gadgets. In fact, we had kids last week bringing in Pokemon cards. Oh, let me jump in here with one thing. Okay. The worst kid, like there were these two camps. There were our camp and the camp beside of us. And the kid that caused the most trouble, that seemed the most unhappy, that just would not listen to anything, 
This kid's parents apparently own eight diamond stores. There's another inversion. According to what we're taught in our culture, shouldn't that kid be doing the best? Isn't that the kid we should all envy? Isn't that the kid that has privileges as if the best thing he could do is extend these privileges so we could all live like kids that have parents that own eight diamond stores? And yet, and I think Teresa will agree with me, of all the kids that came to camp, he seemed the most miserable. I mean, he just, you could tell he was starved for something. He was impoverished, not rich. Yeah, he... I think he a lot of his acting out things. Um, <laughs> what did uh, what did he call a kid in our camp? Stinky penis. The best. Um, what, what would you say the the best name calling for any little boy? I think that's perfect. Is... Yeah, when a, a little boy came and told me that he had called him a stinky penis, I asked for clarification several times so I could laugh. <laughs> like, just, <laughs> like so, can you? Well, it was a stinky penis. Do you feel like a stinky penis? <sighs> I wish I had been there. Um, But yeah, so the last week there were these kids that came in and they brought Pokemon cards. It could have been anything. It could have been an Xbox. It could have been some other sort of fancy gadget. But you know what happened over the course of the week? The kids weren't interested in the Pokemon cards. Our kids picked up sticks And they wanted to play with these sticks in all sorts of different ways. Now, I'm not saying they were great ways uh, in in the context of our summer camp, but it it wasn't the money thrown at these kids to fix a problem. It was that we were watching them. We were saying, like, okay, you can do this, but you can't do that. And when they did step out of line, we tried to give the attention to what they were doing that was good and try to move away from the actions that were bad. And the heir to the diamond fortune was one of the chief kids that were bringing in the Pokemon cards, so wasn't making him happy. And he had, he eventually, uh, what would I say, defected to the stick gang. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the stick army <laughs> uh, is what they were calling it. But so again, all the kids, in, including myself, I mean, when my when I was growing up, my childhood, it was like, you know, two parents that were taking care of two kids. And my parents um, were both working for quite a while while we were going to school. I would have rather had my parents home. I would have rather had my dad not come home at 11 o'clock at night, tired and not really able to visit, or me staying up late to try to see my dad because I hadn't seen him in days upon days. And my parents fighting because they were so concerned about money or, you know, who was home and who wasn't, you know, picking up the the slack when they weren't there. So I think kids would much rather have their parents, their guardians, their tribe than any of this nonsense that you think as an adult is important. I think what makes it important is all what you think it is, not what the kids think. I think kids will be happy with playing with sticks and dirt in in a yard or in the woods somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I grew up poor. Like I remember being a kid and wanting, you know, the other toys that the other kids had. And uh, it wasn't that my parents were great disciplinarians and they just said no because they saw it was bad for me. They couldn't. But I look back on my childhood and even with my dad going crazy, the alcoholism, he was abusive towards my mom. There was a lot of bad crap happening. But I loved my childhood. And a lot of it had to do with being poor. And some of the kids that I grew up with are now parents themselves, and they say things like, I don't want my child to have to grow up like I did. 
holy crap, we had a great childhood together. I was there. Like, we went in the woods. We played games. Like, we explored the creek. I mean, we got into trouble, but it was like, that's how we learned. That's how we broadened our experience. And when I see the way these kids that are supposedly being saved from this horrible childhood of poverty, they're miserable. Like, it's not a good thing. They're just, all they want to do is play video games. They're rude. They're checked out. They are unplugged from reality because they're plugged into this virtual reality. It's scary. It's scary what's happening. So, yeah, I just underline that again, that this idea of rich being good, poor being bad, another inversion, another completely upside-down mockery of the truth. The rich people are impoverished of the things that matter, quality time with their parents, quality time with their peers, um, the feeling that they're connected with like the simple things of nature. These aren't things that you can buy. These are things that money gets in the way of. Indeed. And another example of, you know, parents saying if, uh, well, if I didn't have kids, then maybe I could live in a different way. Um, but then, you know, deciding, making that decision that work and money is going to be more important than spending time and giving attention to their kids. Um, one of my friends was working as a babysitter for a, a couple, um, these parents, had jobs that gave them both a lot of money. And their 12-year-old girl, they wanted someone to stay with her overnight while they were out of town working and um, be there in the morning to take her to school. So basically the parents weren't there. They were busy working. And they must have made the decision, you know, based somewhat on thinking that that was good for their family. Uh, This 12-year-old girl attempted suicide. Presumably having whatever she could possibly want, whatever money could buy her. Three-story house. She um, went to a private school. She said that there was too much pressure as a 12-year-old and tried to commit suicide. And now she's not only having to work through all of that stuff that brought her to that point, but she's kind of branded in this society She kind of already has a file going now. She knows what it's like to go to a hospital and be on suicide watch as a 12-year-old. So think about that the next time you throw up the words, well, if I didn't have kids, maybe I wouldn't have to work. Maybe I wouldn't have to pay all these bills. Think about maybe scaling back. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in lieu of that, like, again and again, I I think we come back and hammer the same points in different ways. And one reason we do that is I hope that in exploring an idea, like there are certain ways that we're just not ready to hear certain things, but maybe there's some angle of looking at something that's like, ah, all right, that kind of struck me in a place that I didn't have my shields up. Like, huh, I'm going to have to think about that a minute. But in considering a different lifestyle, I really believe that tribal lifestyles were the best and we can't fake it. I see a lot of people trying to like, oh, I have my this tribe or that tribe. I see communes, you know, that's supposed to, I think, kind of mimic a tribe. Intentional communities. Intentional communities, yeah. And as Quinn says, I think, again, in the story of B, he talks about communes and he says, we need to escape the prison. A commune is like a community within the prison. (laughs) Um, We need to completely escape this prison of our culture. Because if we're still like a little community and we've decided we're just going to kind of like get together, 
maybe it's a little bit of improvement, but the prison is still going to kill us all. Um, so yeah, I'd say however we can start moving back into this idea of like, you know, they've said, I've heard it said that 150 people is ideal. When you get much beyond that, you don't remember anybody's names anymore. They're not really a community. They start to be numbers. Um, it just invites tyranny. It invites somebody who doesn't see the people as people anymore and starts looking at them as math equations, numbers. That's when really scary shit starts to happen. And that's when we start destroying our children's future because they become little numbers themselves. Hell, isn't that one of the first things you get when you're born, your little social security number? Um, it's like you're already in prison. You know, <laughs> They might also put that social security number on the back of your shirt. Um, so, yeah. I would really, when I picture a future that is, once again, in harmony, I picture tribes. I picture a future that looks a hell of a lot like the distant past. Hmm. And uh, Gumby and I were talking about this, of course, before we record the podcast. And I was thinking, well, I mean, what do people do before getting into a tribe again? Because, like, I think you mentioned, like, you kind of have to have it out of necessity. It's, it doesn't work if it's just this gathering of people that say that they're a tribe, but there's still this separate culture going on because there's always this mm, possible desire to like go and get a pizza at the place down the street or to go, you know, put gas in your car and go for a drive and, and be alone somewhere else. Yeah. When you have to work things out with the people around you, you find ways to work it out. But when things get hard and you don't have to, and you're faking it, it's a hell of a lot harder to keep faking it because so, you know, you can just pull the plug and go back into whatever, like gave you the short term feel good. Exactly. So what do you do in the meantime, kind of like as you're waiting to be able to, to have this situation again that's right for, for a tribal community. Um, and I think it's time to get creative. Uh, Gumby and I, you know, we've, we've shared with you some of the things that we do. We scavenge not just for food, for clothing, for all sorts of supplies that we use on a daily basis. And if I had a kid in my care, I would definitely be breaking some laws. I know it's a risk because I know there's institutions in place to keep us exactly from doing this kind of thing with our kids. I would be taking the risk because it's time to start fighting the people that are breaking every natural law. You shouldn't steal from your children's future. These people are criminals, and if they want to call me an outlaw, I'm going to have to risk that. And if I had a kid, I would be more motivated to do this. Indeed. Um, you know, we talked about scavenging, um, foraging, having, you know, life traveling around in a van. All of these things are kind of living or thinking outside of the box of our society, even though society is still happening around us, but we're looking at it differently. We're trying to escape society. We're trying to remove ourselves and just say no to all of this. Yeah, and, you know, in simplifying, you know, we're talking about the value of time with your kids. Um, you wouldn't have to work as much, if at all, because there'd be no bills. Start exploring how many bills you can give up. You know, maybe you're not ready to jump into a life where there's no bills, but I'd say that's one of the first places to look, because these bills are one of the things that keep you a slave, keep you a wage slave. You have to serve the tax collector. You have to serve the bill collector. A lot of these bills we don't need. A lot of these bills, if you really, like, gave it a chance and really tried to empower the alternative, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how enriched their lives are without the crap that you have to pay this bill on. 
Yeah, and along with that, if we're talking about identifying some of the problems or some of the challenges of not being able to do this, if I didn't have kids, you know, maybe I could give up my house or my car or my internet service or whatever, or my, I hear this one a lot, my phone. Well, I have to have a phone because I have kids and, you know, we need to be able to communicate with yeah, each other. Yeah, and given your kids' phones, it's considered irresponsible to send your kid out into the world without a damn cell phone. Like, we weren't, we didn't do that our whole childhoods if you're a certain age. I mean, and the population still grew, so apparently it wasn't that dangerous. Yeah, so, so thinking about taking, for example, technology. So people with, with money, with the ability to do so, they're sending their kids to our nature camps to learn how to, I don't know, build fires with a match, one match, or build forts, like making shelters in the woods for survival. Um, I don't know if it's enough, but it might be a start to look at things that we see as challenges and then try to identify the opposite of that. Yeah, and even teaching these things, like I'm glad a kid gets to learn how to do a one-match fire and build a fort, but it is um, kind of depressing seeing what we're up against because these kids at the same time just can't wait to get to whatever privilege is in front of them as soon as they get home. They start talking about it when, you know, that clock starts getting near time to go home. Um, so solutions to these problems. We're talking about a lot of problems here. Some of them you may disagree with us on. I can't imagine anybody disagreeing with us on all the problems we're pointing out, um, unless you're a stark raving lunatic or you've got your head up your ass. <laughs> um, but I'd say some of the solutions are that tribal life, 150 people, you know, around there. Um, I'd say it's the minimalism, not having nearly so much stuff. I'd say it's the abolition of privilege, class hierarchy. You know, I hear a lot of white people, you know, kind of priding themselves when they talk about white privilege, and yet they don't reject it. You know, I just scoff at these people. If you think it's so bad, don't do it. I hear people say, oh, you can't just back out of it. It's like water. Bull crap. You know, the fish didn't make water. We make white privilege. You can reject it. You can totally transform your life. Um, so these are all solutions. But as far as how to get there, I wouldn't dream in, like, thinking of a path to say this is how you get there. I think that's the spiritual journey. I think we can agree on some goals of where we want to be. Um, you know, the the Iroquois with, you know, and I hesitantly talk about another culture because if you're Iroquois and you're like, oh, wait a minute, you're full of crap, please correct me. Um, but all I've got to go on is what limited knowledge I run into is this insulated white guy in a culture that I didn't ask to be born into. But from my understanding is when they have an important meeting among other tribes, um, of their coalition, that they start with a thanksgiving. They find things they agree on. We all agree, no matter what we're about to debate about, that we want our children to have clean air. We're thankful for the birds that sing to us. And this goes on and on. Sometimes it's longer than the meeting itself, this thanksgiving. What a beautiful way to think. So these goals, these solutions, we can agree on certain things, certain places we want to get to. Um, and then, you know, all kinds, of, there's room for all kinds of creative ways to get there. Mm -hmm. The journey, you know, for us, it was like hitchhiking and van life and like all kinds of like weird tw twists and curves in the road. For you, it might look completely different, but I, I think we could get to all get to a similar place, a place that our children have a future, a place that we have a world that doesn't scare the crap out of us every day. Yeah, and 
along with that, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you covered this, but just to reiterate, like, we can talk about solutions for the whole podcast, but we can't get you there. We were also talking yesterday about, like, there's some sort of tipping point where if enough people were to just say no, were to just stop all of this, it wouldn't be everybody. It's it's never going to be 100%. But I don't know what that tipping point is, whether it's 20%, 80%, or somewhere in between. There are, If there are going to be changes made, there's a tipping point where enough people are going to turn away from this and the rest will follow. And if they don't, what if we stop them? I mean, I don't say that in a violent, cruel way. I say that in a, this is not a live and let's live kind of situation. We're living in a way that destroys a world we all share. So once enough people start coming around, if there's people that won't, I'd say it's time to stop them. They just need to stop. This this life this lifestyle cannot continue. And something that's interesting that Gumby brought to my attention, um, especially as we're preparing for this next camp that we're doing, um, which we just, for our own conversations, call animism camp, um, children really are natural animists. They, well, I'll let Gumby talk more about this, but we definitely uh, could learn a lot if we just kind of stopped doing what we're doing because the more we mess with kids, the more they turn into us. Yeah, let's see if I can like condense this idea. Um, animism, if you haven't run across this word, um, it's sort of a anthropological word that kind of, it's an umbrella term that talks about the religious views of all indigenous cultures. There's certain things that all indigenous cultures seem to agree on. For instance, that there are spirits that there are unseen forces out there, that there uh, is valid life in all kinds of things that we don't acknowledge as alive. Um, from trees, which we grudgingly acknowledge have some sort of life, but not equal to our own, certainly. Mm. Animals, of course. Rocks, stones, things that we don't even have names for. I mean, some of them even distinguish, like, you know, the different winds as different personalities, different life forms, different species, you might say. Um, this is animism. It's a belief that there's not really an end to life. There's a trading of the fire that we call life. You take your turn and you pass it on and you transform into something. It's a completely different way of looking at life and death. Children are still, even in our culture, even after 10,000 years of indoctrination, children still show signs of being born animists. A lot of people like to dismiss this as, all right, there's the proof. It is a mark of immaturity. So these these cultures that are animist are like children. Mm. They're immature. They need to grow up. Um, and so a lot of people have kind of charted this little course. Well, first, you are an animist. You believe there's little boogeymen and spirits, and <laughs> even the rocks talk. And then you become a monotheist. You know, you start believing in one god and et cetera, et cetera, until we become our proud scientific culture that eats everything alive and is on its way to dying. (laughs) Um, But I don't see it that way. I see that we are still creatures that are wired for harmony. We belong on this planet. We know how to be here. And still we're born animists. You see kids do this all the time. They I had a little girl a few years ago. We were doing sit spots. I'd send the kids just out to sit in the woods. She was doing these motions on top of this rock. And I finally asked her, what are you doing? She says, I dance with the wind. 
It was nothing to her. It was just something she did. The wind was her friend. Kids do this all the time from their stuffed animals, mm-hmm. you know, like their little bear has a name, you know, in ways that as adults, we would usually not dream of doing this. But they see life everywhere. We teach it out of them. You know, we see it as kind of a childish thing and eventually we condition it out of them. I don't think this is a quality that marks immaturity. I think this is a beautiful quality. Imagine living in a world where we didn't abandon that. Um, one of the things that makes our culture operate is we are a death culture. We need to see things as objects, not subjects. We need to see the world as dead because we have power over it then. We can do whatever we damn well want to to a piece of forest or a wetland because it's not alive. It's not sentient. It doesn't speak. It doesn't scream when we cut it down. Never mind the idea that maybe it does scream and we've become deaf to it. You know, and the same argument, you know, was used against other peoples. Um, World War Two, you know, you can go and like there was all this this racist propaganda against the Japs. They don't talk like us. Maybe they don't talk at all. Maybe they're more closely related to monkeys than us. We definitely saw it used against the blacks in our most racial times in our history's development. Um, it's something we use against other people. So how easy is it to just extend that to everything? And now we have power over the world because we can do whatever we want to it. And now we're paying the price for it. And we're about to pay the final price for it, like right around the corner, Mm -hmm. unless we get smart really freaking quick. But it's not hopeless because kids are born wanting to think this. If you don't teach it out of them, we are still animist. If we could just stop, I think that would bloom out of us. It's, It's latent in us. We want to hear those voices again. We want to live in a magical, green, fresh universe that talks to us full of tribes, tree tribes, bee tribes, rock tribes, wind tribes, cloud tribes. Imagine that world. Imagine how well we take care of it. Imagine the harmony. So, yeah. As a adults, whether you're a parent or not, it's it's really difficult to role model looking at things as if they're alive. Because we need things to be inanimate. We need to look at everything as a resource so that we can buy, sell, and trade it. Otherwise, we would have to acknowledge that we're murderers of so many things. But who wants to be a murderer? I don't know too many people. So we just we just teach it out of our children, teach it out of ourselves, that if we can't handle the death of a tree to make toilet paper, like, we'll just don't think of the tree as alive. Yeah, grow the hell up. That's kind of the attitude. Grow up. Um, and we see this in our camps, you know. We see... We see that, you know, the in, in the children that come to our camps, this this latent animism, this animism that we're, we're seeing it starting to die, that we get around like eight, nine, ten-year-olds mostly in our camps. They're starting to see this as a childish thing, and yet it's more alive in them than adult groups. Um, so, yeah, I definitely – that's a, a teaching and an idea that really – spoke to me is this animism, this this world of voices and everything, and that we're still born animists. Something that Gumby talks about a lot, um, he talks about Daniel Quinn and quotes from his books, and I'll give this over to Gumby, but there is a lot that Daniel Quinn has written about schools um, versus kind of what was happening in a tribal culture. Yeah, another book that I highly recommend, you know, I've been talking about the story of B, pretty much anything by Daniel Quinn I recommend, but My Ishmael, 
Um, the the what would I say? The protagonist, the the kind of student in this book, is a little girl named Julie. And of all the things that are getting talked about in this book, really cool things, and this is also the one where he talks about communes, um, he talks about school. And he asks her some really interesting questions, like, so Julie, do you like school? And it's like, yeah, you know. And she's kind of resigned to it, and he asks, well, what do you learn there? And through these questions, you know, he's asking her, like, um, so do you remember, you know, all these things you learn? And she's like, well, you know, I just try to remember it long enough to pass a test. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so what, what do you think is the purpose of this? Like, do you think, are you going to be a historian? Is that what you plan on being when you grow up? No. And so he starts questioning, why is it, do we go through so much trouble to indoctrinate these kids with these facts that don't seem relevant when kids are natural learners? For instance, we all know how to use money. We're invested in that. We all learn how to play the games that we like to play. We're invested in that. You don't have to go to school for that. We want to learn. So why are we being forced to learn things that it takes so much effort to teach kids that for the most part don't even matter, even within this arbitrary culture we've created? They don't even matter within that. Like the stuff I was, they, they were trying to teach me in math. I learned what I needed to, and that's the stuff I'm pretty good at. You know, I might have to use my fingers now and then, but I get there. I do what I got to do. I never needed to know calculus. I don't need to know calculus. Unless I had taken a specific job where I needed to know calculus, don't need it. And if I wanted that job, I probably could have learned it then when I started taking an interest in that job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, these are really good questions. And then he asks, isn't it kind of like they're keeping you busy? You know, like... And he explores this idea that maybe the whole purpose of education, and I'm talking about from public school to private school, I'm not saying there's not a little something here and there that is, you know, kids learn that's valuable, but I think maybe they'd learn it anyway. Um, You just pick up stuff. I've seen this in homeschool groups and uh, unschool groups. I used to be alarmed that homeschoolers would be like 10 years old and wouldn't know how to read. But I've seen them grow up, and when they decided to read, they freaking learned it. And they put their, all their energy into things that they continued to be passionate about. Mm. Um, so think about the economical repercussions of school. These kids can't do anything that, even if they wanted to, um, profits them. These are strict consumers, and they're kept consumers for a good long time, right on through college if they've taken the most recommended route. Um And think about what would happen to the economy if we did away with school. So maybe school isn't what we're taught that it is. You know, like another thing he brings up I thought was really interesting is we're all taught that schools need help. You know, help the schools. Schools need financial help. If only they had more money, schools would be better. And, of course, this is one of the ideas that fuels the privileged school because they're getting the money. But he asks, if you're a teacher, would you teach better because you have more money? And I'm not saying, like, this is not saying that teachers aren't getting paid fairly. Like, I I am all for these teachers that are on strike and saying it's not fair that we're getting paid so little and these other people aren't. But the school system itself, I found that the more I do without toys and trinkets and little things I have to buy, the better I like my teaching. And I always give it the most effort I can because it's about the kids. And as far as this uh, lifestyle, you know, that requires us to need more money— I mean, that's kind of what we've been talking about in the first place. Like, that's something we all need to look at, teachers and non-teachers, like pulling back from a a life that needs so much money. Um, 
to really consider what we're teaching our kids. Yeah, that's um. there's a lot that we're covering here. And I've always kind of looked at school as, even when I was in school, like in elementary and middle school, I sort of understood it as this is a place where they send children so the parents can go to work. Um, and the poor teachers, you know, having to keep us engaged with facts and figures that we regurgitate on tests. And God help the teacher if they thought they were going to start this profession and have a lot of money because that's just not how this life works. Um, but after reading my Ishmael and, and Gumby and I kind of discussing it, schools also used to keep children out of the workforce. I mean, if you think back in our history, children were working by age five, six, seven, eight, and they could be paid less, and that lowered the wages for the adults. And it uh, it caused um, joblessness in adults because you could get all the kids to do the work instead of having to pay an adult a living wage for whatever time frame we're talking about. And so school is not only just babysitting, um, but it's also keeping children out of the workforce until they're ready to we're ready for them to join the workforce. Yeah, we're just conditioning these kids to join the workforce, which fuels the economy. So the almighty dollar, I mean, that's what it's about. If it was really about nurturing your kids and having a kid that is educated, really think about your kids, you know, like they follow their passion. This is something we're wired for. If you've, if we've killed it in them, it's probably because of a school. Um, like I said in another podcast, I've heard it said that it takes a lot to kill a child's passion for learning because we are learning creatures. They're like little sponges that want to learn stuff. And uh, one of the things that accomplishes killing a child's passion for learning is school. And I'm not altogether sure that that's accidental um, because, you know, it's kind of dangerous to a culture that has all kinds of holes in its logic that is just um, – what am I trying to say? That is just blatantly killing us. Mm. It's a thoughtful person. It's mm-hmm. somebody that has protected their time to think about things and also has developed a mind that they can reject some of the things that they're taught that they can't reject, that knows they can call bullshit on it. So if school is killing this curiosity in kids, well, it kind of works to the favor of our culture, doesn't it? Because then they just resign themselves to get a job and go along and you know do their little part to contribute to society. Yeah, and if you have kids that are unhappy with school, they're unhappy with this process, they're unhappy with society, what do we tell them? Well, even Gumby talked about this in one of our podcasts, his school counselor, well, just keep trying to get good grades so that you could go to college and get that good job so you could buy stuff to make yourself happy. And we know as adults, that's not how it works. Yeah, and another thing that uh, Quinn talks about that I found very interesting in, um, oh man, I wish I could have found the book in time because this was like a little part of a quote I could have probably read, but he compares a 12-year-old from our culture with a 12-year-old from an indigenous culture. Now, he asked Julie, and I think maybe she's 12 in this book, he says, what if you just got dropped in the middle of a city? Would you know how to survive? What what do you think your survival value is? And she's like, no, I, I wouldn't know what to do. And he's like, you know, so, but you've been going to school, like, you've been getting sent to this institution since you were, what, four or five? Maybe even earlier, if you're one of these people getting a head start. Um, shouldn't you have survival value in this culture? And she's like, well, you know, I, I think maybe I will after I get done with college. 
And he said, yeah, that's kind of what you're supposed to think. And as long as you do that one thing you're supposed to do that you've learned to do, people will trade you the goods you need to survive. But God help you if that falls apart, because then you're going to need to be on welfare. You're going to need the government's assistance. Now, that might seem kind of normal because, again, the boiling frog, we've had time to get used to this crazy idea that that's just the way it is. God, I hate it when people say that, as if they had no responsibility in things being just the way they are. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> and he says, now consider a 12-year-old from an indigenous tribe. By 12 years old, without going to any institution, without having anything forced upon them, without having their curiosity killed but encouraged... This child has huge survival value. Twelve years old, if he suddenly finds himself out in the woods, he's among friends. He knows what plants he can eat. They're talking to him. They tell him, you could eat me. He knows medicines. He knows how to build a trap. He knows how to catch food. He might not be the best hunter he can be yet at 12, but he's got pretty damn good odds that he can survive. Imagine the security of that child. He already knows how to help his tribe. He already can begin to take care of his family in a meaningful way, not in some, uh, an exploit, exploitative child labor kind of way, but just in a natural because I know my place. I belong here, and I've been taught by my people how to keep this place healthy. Why aren't we doing that for our kids? Is it really so impossible? Is it really so far beyond us to do what every indigenous tribe, including your own ancestors, all of our ancestors did this. I don't care how lily white your ass is. You've got ancestors somewhere back in time that did the same thing. We can do this. It's possible. And I love that Quinn started asking these questions because it really spurred on some thinking on my own part about a 12-year-old from an indigenous tribe versus this helpless creature we're forming. And why do we want him so helpless? I don't think I need to answer that. Just you consider that. Who benefits from this helpless, dependent creature, this poor 12-year-old? Yeah, so one of the things Quinn explores, and I don't completely agree with this idea, but I think it's an interesting thing to bring up, is he says maybe one way, just as an example, because people keep asking, well, what's your solution? And I like that Quinn doesn't give solutions. I like that he spurs questions because I believe solutions really have to come from you. You have to get creative enough and invested enough to come up with your solutions. But I feel like Quinn kind of got pushed by his listeners like, well, I want a solution. So he started suggesting some things. And one was the learning fair. What if you had a city that just decided they were going to do an experiment? And instead of school, instead of anything that like was forced upon the kids, it was understood that you did your job and kids could wander anywhere. That was their school. The city was their school while you did your job. And you had agreed that if a kid comes up to you and asks, can I help? What are you doing? Ask questions. That you would just freely answer them. If it was something they could help with, you'd find some way, way they could help. You know, what if we just let go of the idea of productivity a minute? What if it slowed down just a, a touch so we could teach our kids the things they cared about. A kid didn't have to sit through a one damn boring lecture, one thing they didn't want to learn about. They followed their passions completely. What would happen? Now, I think that was a really interesting idea, like just considering the implications of that. Yeah, and then, you know, think about the jobs in our culture right now. So what Quinn said was really interesting, but Gumby and I, uh, we were discussing this of course, before the podcast and wondering if we could take that thought and go further with it, because often um, people do have 
jobs that are kind of just, I don't know, they're just busy work. I can speak for myself. And damaging to the environment. And yeah, they're not good for the environment. So what if we could go further and have jobs that are more like they were in a tribal situation, jobs that matter, jobs that make sense, jobs that are working in harmony with nature that children could begin to learn. And also, I just kind of got this thought, it's it's kind of minuscule in the topic, but if you think about how way back when uh, we would hear about cultures where there would be people getting married or like pairing off being partners at age like 12, 15, 16. And we, we think back like, wow, that's really insane. Like how would I get, you know, my 15 or 16 year old, like how would they survive on their own? And this is, I think this is what we're talking about is we're keeping the children in a certain way as babies, as helpless, as consumers. Whereas in the past, we were giving them survival value. It wasn't about keeping them at home playing video games. It was teaching them valuable skills for life to live on this planet in harmony with the planet. Yeah, and all of our cultural arrogance, we like to, as I said earlier, think of these indigenous animus cultures as childish and us the mature culture. I see us as stuck in our adolescence. We're completely dependent, we're helpless, we're, we're like adolescents who like complain Um, We just devour, you know, we got these appetites. We never grow up. There are no men and women in our culture. Um, And I think the mature culture, as Cerise is talking about, are these people, these indigenous cultures that do know how to survive on their own planet. I mean, these are magical beings. These are men and women. These are people that live in a, a magical, rich world and knew how to keep it this way. How can we call them childish? I mean, it's ridiculous. If the mark of maturity, by our definition, is to create this world that we've created around us, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want any bit of it. And by our own definition of our cultural standards, you know, speaking of education, um, it's widely thought that the best education system on the planet we find in Finland. And Michael Moore does this documentary, Where to Invade Next, where he's going to different countries and finding out what works for them that we're not doing in America. And he goes to Finland. And man, I love that part because I'm I'm kind of with Quinn's line of thinking. I'd love to do away with institutional schools just altogether. But if we're not ready for that big leap, let's consider Finland that still has institutional schools. And let's look at a few things they did. You know, if, the, if they had the best educational system... It makes sense to look at what they did that's different. They did away with homework. They shortened the school days. They want kids to have time, to have free time, to climb trees. <laughs> the camp we're working at is one of the rules. You're not supposed to climb trees. Um, to go be kids, to play, just to be kids, because they recognize kids learn naturally. That this stuff, like climbing a tree, is not a waste of time. It's intrinsic. It's as important, if not more important, than the homework they were giving. Kids thrived in this environment. And another thing that I find so important, they did away with private schools. We're doing camp at a private school right now. Um, and I guess the thinking behind that is if I can afford to give my kid a better education, that they're not going to these public schools with like metal detectors and security guards and threats of shootings and red alerts, that that's something I want to do for my kid. I'm doing a good thing. What Finland figured out is, well, if all the rich kids, all the people that have power with their money that can, like, 
affect our society the most get to put their kids over here? What motivation is there to improve the schools of the poor people? Mm -hmm. If we do away with private schools and everybody shares the same fate, won't it notch everything up? Won't it ratchet everything up to a higher quality? And that's what happened. So, yeah, the the school versus private school. Even if you're you're kind of thinking, ah, I don't, I don't, I'm not with you, Gumby, on like doing away with the institution of school. Consider at least the private school. Are you really doing something for your kids? Because consider the world that you're creating. You might think in the short term, oh, I'm doing something great for my kid, but you're feeding into class hierarchy. Think about the things being taught underneath the curriculum. You're teaching them that if they have money. They should benefit from it and screw the poor. And how long do you think the poor are going to take that? And then maybe they'll grow up and be um, resentful towards the poor because now they have to take care of these poor Mm -hmm. through their taxes, their welfare. It's an ugly system, and it's blowing up in our face right now. And that's something being taught to the kids. Kids are not stupid. These little things underneath, the kids are absorbing this almost through osmosis. Yeah, and um, um, Gumby might have covered this already, but the private schools are, they're feeding the idea of privilege, whether you want to call it white privilege or uh, colonialist privilege or whatever, and the idea of class hierarchy. Um, And some people might think that, you know, just like that illusion of tribe we were talking about before, that maybe private schools they're people that have the same ideals and and we believe in the same things. So this is our tribe as a private school. But um, just the other week, we heard from someone who uh, Gumby knows and they commented that, you know, their family fell on some hard times. They didn't have enough money, so they got kicked out of their private school. So what kind of tribe is that? Yeah, it's a pure illusion. You're paying for the illusion that you're part of this family with your little private school. But uh, let your... Let your family hit hard times. Let, let, how about that time when you can't pay that tuition anymore? Family isn't something you pay tuition to be part of. And what does that teach your kids? Hell, what's that teaching you? Mm-hmm. You know, what have you resigned yourself to? Um, and like I said, this private school I'm working with, I, I like the people there. And I'm not, I don't want to, one of the reasons I'm not naming the school is I don't want to just like shame and hammer them um, individually. But I do think they're part of a system that needs to change. And that illusion, I've known a few families that couldn't pay their tuition anymore, and they are no longer part of this private school family. It's an illusion. It's BS. Yeah, so um, I was on Facebook talking about escaping society, but I still check on Facebook every once in a while. And a couple months ago, um, they had uh, somebody had created a video of Greta Thunberg, and we'd mentioned her name before in previous podcasts, and how little Greta Thunberg, um, she decided that she was going to um, initiate a protest of school, and I think it was like every Friday tried to stay home from school in protest of what we're doing, what we're all doing to the environment. And not only did she initiate this protest, but she also spoke to like the UN Climate Change uh, Council. And I I don't even remember how old she is, but I think she was like 15 or something at the time. So we, we appreciate what she is talking about as far as boycotting school, but 
She's not talking about boycotting school. Well, okay, boycotting a, a day of school. So, Gumby, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, I find her very inspiring. She got me thinking, like, for the most part, when I think about our culture, I don't have a lot of hope. I just feel like we're doomed. <laughs> I mean, basically. Every now and then something happens where I'm like, oh, my God. Things could go a different way. That's got potential. I hadn't thought about that. Greta was one of those people that inspired a thought in me that I usually don't have. Like, wow, she's on to something. <laughs> but it was a day of protest. I feel like the day of protest really being meaningful is past us. I feel like there have been protests when you start looking into history, and they do make little changes. We don't need little changes anymore. We need a drastic change. We need a screeching halt to the things that are killing us. So instead of boycotting one day of school, what if kids all over the world refused one more minute of it, period? Picture this all over the world. This is one thing that could change the, the whole momentum, the tide of what we're doing. If all the kids, and of course they're going to need help from their parents. What if they had wise parents who had two shits to give, to rub together and like help their kids understand things need to change drastically and I'm going to support you. You don't have a future the way things are going. We're just waiting for something to get fixed, but we're not fixing it. What the hell do you think is going to happen? These same scientists who got us here are going to invent the new thing that saves us. These same politicians who haven't helped us are suddenly going to turn the tide. They are a reflection of us. And if we can't do it, um, we vote for these people. They're, they don't have new ideas. We vote for these people because they represent our old ideas. We need new ideas. What if every child said, until we come up with those new ideas, until I have a future, no more college, no more high school. Hell, preschool. What if they emptied out? <laughs> Not another moment of it. That would bring our society to a screeching halt. And school doesn't make sense if there's no future. Even if you do, like if all a school is is preparing you to be a part of the economy, be a cog in a machine, even that doesn't make sense. There's no machine if we're falling apart. It's breaking. So I would really encourage that idea that Greta Thunberg had, and I would push it further. Yeah, like Gumby's saying, our culture is kind of, we're kind of played out on protests. It seems like nowadays there's a protest for everything. Like I was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, plastic straws, plastic cups. Everybody's protesting everything, but it's not really doing very much. It's like the 15 seconds of fame that we used to have for people or 15 minutes. Now it's like 15 milliseconds um, that protest is just kind of lost on us. We need outright refusal. Just stop now. One of the things Greta said that I loved is she said, the house is on fire and I want you to act like it. Think about that. The house is on fire. It's burning right now. The smoke is filling the air. The house is on fire. It's going up. How do you act when your house is on fire? Do you step out to protest the fire and then step right back into it? <laughs> it's stupid. You step the fuck out of that house and you don't go back in until that house ain't on fire anymore. And maybe you never go back into that house. Maybe you build a new house. So I love what she said, but I don't think she thought about it enough. And I don't think anybody heard that enough and thought about it deeply enough. You don't go back into a house that's on fire. So good on you, Greta, for encouraging people to get out of that house. But don't go back into the house. It's still on fire. <laughs> don't complain about the house. Get out of there. It's on fire. 
Yeah, and like Gumby has said too, like he doesn't really have hope for this generation. Um, and I think, you know, there are glimmers of hope, but uh, at this point, maybe we're we're kind of wrapped up so much in our technology, and we're not really good communicators, um, especially compared to generations in the past. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I have much hope either. Maybe this is just something that's going to run its course, and maybe we'll see the outcome that we want. Maybe we'll be gone before that happens. Yeah, I uh, hear some people say, like, oh, I've got a lot of hope for this generation. They're very clever. They're launching all these protests. You know, they're very uh, um, political. Um, I personally am not seeing a lot of hope in this generation. I see them more reliant on technology than ever before. I see them doing a lot of things that um, they're trying to invent new gadgets. Like, remember this guy that, like, there's plastic in the ocean and he's trying to invent this thing, this new gizmo to go and like what is it clean it up you remember suck, that it, guy? suck it up out, out of the ocean but he he's missing the point yeah like all the things that i'm seeing are still like um they come from a generation that believes religiously in technology that believes religiously in politics we need to like run for office I believe it's the structure itself that needs to be abandoned. We don't need better politicians. We don't need politicians. We don't need people who elevate themselves above us, who have – we don't need people who are supposedly in charge of populations. They don't know the name of everybody in their population. We need a tribe, and a tribe doesn't need politicians. We don't need technology, like the, this plastic that's floating on the ocean. He's trying to find a better way to handle it. What if we stopped a lifestyle that creates the plastic? Yeah. Right now. We could do it. We never needed plastic before. This is a recent invention. Have we so quickly forgotten how to live without plastic? Exactly. And all these little, little things. People get so focused on the little things. But, And you might say, well, at least they're doing something. They can like work on a lot of little things. It's all the little things. I disagree. I think if you want to, if there were an evil plant... You know, this this plant that, like, is making everybody sick, that's killing all the other plants around it. You don't hack at the branches. You don't find ways to, like, kill the fruit. You dig that root out. That's what I don't see in this generation. And, um, yeah, and I would love to be proved wrong. But all the ideas, all this, like, political nonsense, it looks like the same old crap to me. And just look year after year at what's happening. It's not working. Um. So, you know, we talked about at the beginning, like, if I didn't have kids. And I think a lot of these topics touch on some things that maybe parents can reconsider. Like, maybe instead of throwing up the excuse... <laughs> throwing up. <laughs> throwing the excuse of your children for your children's sake. I don't think that even makes sense anymore. And like Gumby said, and like we've talked about, there are a lot of kids nowadays who they don't know any better. They're definitely of the generation of plastic bags, of smartphones. They don't know a life without it. And I mean, maybe I don't either. And I'm 38. So this is quickly becoming a thing of the past to think about our world in a different way. We're just assuming that it's always been this way because we don't know any different. But I think right now there's, there is a need 
to get more extreme. And what were we talking about the other day, Teresa, yesterday when we were driving up to Asheville and, you know, we were talking about not having hope and what, do you remember that conversation where I said, well, there's a ray of hope. There's a way of looking at it. Mm. And like, we should write that down, but we didn't. (laughs) Well, we were talking about like picking battles and maybe, you know, if you're really adamant about not using styrofoam or plastic or something, that's a drop in the, the ocean of all of these problems, but it's the mindset. It's like thinking about caring for the earth. It's thinking that things are alive. It's thinking that we need to do something now. It isn't just the small protests individually. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I could remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I like to end with a ray of hope whenever possible, and I thought I found one yesterday, but damn if I can remember it now. Well, I just like to keep it real, and if the house is on fire, we need to stop it now. Yeah, and And, we can. And we're the problem, so we can stop it when we decide to stop it, which I would like to urge people who are listening, let's start now. Yeah, and never forget, every morning you wake up, you know, we could stop this today. Um I would say, you know, one of the things I hear people say is, well, what can I do? If everybody doesn't do it, it doesn't make a difference. But the thing is, if everybody's thinking that, nobody does it. Hmm. So if you don't change, that guarantees nothing's going to change. If you change, well, then that right there gives hope. That that, cre- that lets you know that there's the potential that other people could make the same decision. Hmm. We could stop this today, overnight. This could all stop. It's possible. We're choosing not to. We're making compromises. We're waiting as things get more and more urgent. So I'd say let's just remember that. And, um, yeah, if you're one of the kids here in this, like, man, if you can organize a boycott of school, you've got power. You could really stop this today. You're just because you're a kid. Don't don't wait for these adults. These are the same adults that got you into the me- this mess. They mm-hmm. are not going to save you from it. Um, most of the adults, if you even bother to listen to this, I don't think you're going to change crap. I mean, just (laughs) what needs to happen? I don't think it's my lovely voice, you know, telling you to change. Um, Hopefully it gets a conversation started. But, yeah, so if if I didn't have kids, I'd do that. Do it because you have kids. Start dropping out. Start escaping society because you have kids. Exactly. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, if you feel like you need support in this, contact us. We've got a website. It's escaping society. That's all one word, lowercase dot Weebly W E E be like boy L Y dot com escaping society dot Weebly dot com. It's got links to our podcasts. It's got links to our YouTube channel, which includes videos on some helpful tips and tricks. If you're uh, attempting to move um, on from the life that you're leading now and maybe explore van life or backpacking, hitchhiking, living in the woods. And uh, it also talks about our survival overnights and hitchhiking trips and backpacking trips. So check it out. And thank you for listening. Yep. See you later.